You're listening to the Irish Times Worldview Podcast. Welcome to Worldview from the Irish Times. I'm Chris Dooley, standing in this week for Dennis Staunton. Later we'll be looking at the situation in Syria, which is this week entering the fifth year of a civil war that has already killed more than 200,000 people. Michael Johnson will bring us the latest news from Damascus and tell us how people there are coping with the conflict that appears to have no end in sight. But first to Crimea, where exactly a year ago a referendum was held that led to the region's annexation from Ukraine by Russia. I'm joined on the line by Daniel McLaughlin, who is reporting this week from Crimea for the Irish Times, and Isabel Gorst, our correspondent in Moscow, who will give us the view from there and tell us about the reappearance in public today of Vladimir Putin after a 10-day absence. Dan, you're in Sevastopol. Can you tell us first, how is the anniversary of the referendum on Crimean secession from Ukraine being marked there today? Well, there is a a great sense of celebration here in in Sevastopol. It's the start of a week of... um of celebrations marking the uh, the referendum last year, um, in which the Russian authorities at least claimed that 97% of Crimeans who voted voted to, to join Russia and to, to join the region to Russia and break away from Ukraine. So we've got that uh, anniversary today. Uh, in a couple of days' time, we have the anniversary of Putin's decision to actually sign the annexation into law and take uh, take Crimea back into the Russian Federation. Um, we have celebrations even beginning over the weekend, we've seen all kinds of things from a huge parade of, of, of children, thousands of children in the capital of Crimea, Simferopol, marching through the streets, singing songs, you know, all uh, draped in the Russian colors, the red, white and blue, uh, down here in Sevastopol which is the main, uh, the main port uh, and a major military base for the Russian Black Sea Fleet. We're seeing uh, parades through the streets. We're seeing a, a biker gang that, that President Vladimir Putin has spent time with, in fact, um, uh, on various occasions called the, the Night Wolves. They're here riding through town on their big bikes, wearing their leather, r- w- waving the Russian flag around the place. And um, it's going to continue for the days ahead. We've seen military parades as well. And we're expecting something later in the week involving the, the Black Sea Fleet. We're expecting the, the boats to be out on the water. But the big question here is, especially with Putin's reappearance here, uh, reappearance today, is whether Putin or other um, top officials from, from mainland Russia, as people call it here, will come down here to celebrate with Crimeans later in the week. Okay. And Dan, just to recap on the referendum of a year ago, it, it was, of course, uh, boycotted by Crimeans lawyer to Ukraine and it was condemned as illegal by just about everybody except uh, except Russia. Um, but there's no doubt that the majority of people there um, do support the did support the annexation, and and um, they, they want to be part of Russia. Isn't that correct? Certainly, the, the, there is a very strong feeling uh, around the place. Particularly here, I would say in Sevastopol, which has always been, a, as I say, a, a Russian uh, military base and which has very, very strong links with Russia. There is very strong connection with Russia, um, and we have to remember that, that people here, while there was uh, the, the Maidan demonstrations were taking place in Kiev and other cities around Ukraine, particularly in western and central Ukraine, there was big opposition to those protests down here in Crimea, and people were watching Russian media, and Russian media was telling them that 
fascists were taking control in Kiev, that they hated Russian speakers all over the country and were, and, and were actually coming to Crimea particularly to attack Russian speakers and to make sure that the new government in Kiev took control of Crimea. So there was great fear at that time of what was going on in, in Kiev and around the rest of Ukraine. That spilled over into, uh, into a, a, a very strong feeling, a very great desire for Russia to come in here and take control among a large number of people. Probably, I would say, the, um, the majority. But when we look at the, the figures from last year um, on huge turnout, and as I say, around 97% of those people supposedly voting to join Russia, the figures really were not believable when you consider that the vast majority of Ukrainians that live here and the vast majority of Crimean Tatars, um, we think, would not have been in favor of, uh, of unification with Russia. And they comprise something like 35 or even 40% of the population. But certainly of the people who, who are out there on the streets now, very, very strong feeling that they've done the right thing. And of course, they're hearing from Russia now. We saw in a big interview with Putin that was broadcast over the weekend that uh, swift Russian action last year in Crimea to take control of the situation here prevented the kind of violence that we've seen in, in eastern Ukraine in Donetsk and Lugansk regions. So people here look at what's going on in that region now. They see the bloodshed and, the, and the, um, the, the, the widespread damage to those regions, and they think that they got away very lightly, and they thank Russia and, and they thank Putin for that. And what about daily life, Dan, for them? I remember a year ago, um, those who were the, um, the pro-Russians in Crimea did talk about they would prefer to live uh, in Russia because salaries were higher, pensions were higher, and quality of life was better and so on. Um, is it working out that way for them? quite working out that way for them. You're absolutely right. There were posters all over the place last year in Crimea, just before the referendum, um, showing basic prices and, and basic payments that people were, 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 well, things they were having to pay or things they were receiving from the Ukrainian state, compared to what they would have to pay or receive or what they would receive if they were part of Russia. And that looked like, in economic terms, a very good deal for Crimeans. It looked like they were going to win on all kinds of fronts economically if they did join Russia. But it hasn't really worked out that way. Pensions have gone up, uh, some, state, some state payments have gone up, but speaking to people here over the last couple of days, it seems that actually a lot of those um, payments are now being reduced. We have to remember that um, Russia is going through major economic problems now, and the cash that was around even a year ago in the Russian budget isn't around anymore. Um, the oil price is roughly halved. The value of the ruble, ruble against the dollar is roughly halved over over the past year. So Russia's having to tighten its belt a lot as well. And of course, Crimea looks like well, uh, and is going to be a major drain on Russian funds for years ahead. People here are expecting major investment in infrastructure from Russia. But it's going to be tough for Russia to deliver on all those promises. Um, there is still a feeling generally of optimism. They feel that they, being with Russia, they're with a more stable, uh, a more prosperous country and a country that has better prospects in general than Ukraine. But certainly uh, all the, the, the promises of, of rapid economic improvement and, and a prosperous future in the very near future for people in Crimea once they joined Russia have not come to pass so far. And, and what about those, Dan, then who were opposed to the secession uh, to Russia? Um, is there a visible opposition to Moscow there or um, has it been suppressed? Are people allowed to, if you, if you flew a Ukrainian flag there, for example, um, might you 
draw the ire of the authorities? Uh, you would almost certainly draw the ire of the, the authorities very, very quickly. Um, we had a, a, an example of it just the other day um, when Ukrainians came out uh, roughly, in, when I say that, I mean pro, pro Ukraine, people with pro Ukrainian feelings, let's say, in Crimea, came out in Simferopol, the, the capital, to um, mark an anniversary for um, Taras Shevchenko, who's the national poet of Ukraine. They went out, about 50 or 60 of them were marching through town. Um, all they had were a few Ukrainian symbols. You know, they had a few flags. They had Ukrainian ribbons on their lapels. And several of them were arrested. Um, three of them were given community service orders. They were accused of um, basically rabble-rousing, causing trouble, and even of carrying extremist symbols. They said, well, you know, this is just the Ukrainian flag. Surely it can't be uh, considered an extremist symbol. But they were given community service orders. And the, 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 the man who organized that, who I spoke to the other day, uh, went back to the school where he taught the next day, and he was actually fired for having uh, organized that march, a very peaceful march through the center of Simferopol. Um, speaking to Tatar, uh, members of the Crimean Tatar minority here, they say that they're having all kinds of trouble in terms of expressing their opinion, expressing their, their widespread opposition to the annexation. And thousands of people have left, um, and they've gone to mainland Ukraine for the most part because they don't feel safe here, they don't want to live in Russia, and they don't feel that they can uh, freely express their opinion and, and their opposition to what Russia is doing here. Okay. And Isabel Gorst in Moscow, at the time of the referendum last year, Russia's President Vladimir Putin he insisted he had no hand in developments in Crimea, that in annexing the territory, Russia was merely responding to the will of the people and so on. But a different story has emerged um, over time, and particularly in a documentary aired in Russia on Sunday night. Uh, can you tell us what actually we learned from that, from that film? Um, yes, there was indeed a documentary as la last night that had been very heavily flagged by Russian TV and everybody being urged to watch it. And Putin appeared looking supremely confident um, he was a star show of the documentary. He said that, in fact, he and a group of officials, four or five men who he didn't, he didn't name, but they'd met on the night of February the 27th, 28th, and talked till 7 o'clock in the morning, and had planned to annex, to annex Crimea even before holding a referendum. In fact, he said they'd, they'd held their own private referendum to see whether people in Crimea really would want to be reunified with Russia. Uh, so that, that was news. I mean, Putin has changed the narrative about the annexation of Crimea several times, and this was just the latest version. Well, okay. And he said something else remarkable, Isabel. It's been widely reported today. Um, he said that um, he had uh, put nu Russia's nuclear weapons into a state of readiness last year during the Crimea crisis. Um, can you tell us a bit more about that? And, and, and is it was this merely macho talk? Do you think, or should we take him at his word? Um, I, I think it was it was largely macho talk. I mean, he 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 went on to stress that Russia has a historic right to own Crimea, and just just briefly, Crimea was conquered by Catherine the Great in the 18th century, and then. Um, Nikita Khrushchev gave it to Ukraine in the 1950s, shortly after Stalin died. Um, but then, of course, Ukraine was then part of the Soviet Union, so giving it away was quite easy to do. With the trouble really started when the Soviet Union fell apart in 1991. And I think a lot of Russians have been 
very badly hurt by the loss of, of Crimea. It's, it's definitely an area where they, they feel it's, it's part of their culture and heritage. If you get back to the nuclear, the nuclear question, I, I don't think that Putin is mad enough to lob a nuclear bomb at the US or Europe if they came on the attack, but I think he, he sees that as a demonstration of strength to remind everybody that, nu- that Russia is a nuclear power and you can't mess with it. Okay, well, that analysis will come as a relief to most most of us. Um, and uh, Dan mentioned, of course, the celebrations going on in Crimea this week. Are there um, official celebrations taking place on on, on the mainland, as, as they would call it, um, uh, to mark the annexation? Um, I I haven't heard of any very grand preparations, but of course, the whole of upcoming event has been sort of shrouded both by the murder of Boris Nemtsov, which has captured everybody's attention and the news waves, and then this mysterious disappearance of Putin, who wasn't seen for 10 days. And so there's been no talk of his plans to join the celebrations. I imagine he probably would go down to Crimea because it's it so much underpins his popularity that he's managed to reclaim Crimea for Russia. But he's only just appeared today, so his movements are a bit unclear. Okay, and and just you anticipated my next uh, and final question to you, Isabel. Putin's um, disappearance for the past ten days. He turned up again in, in public today. Has there been any official explanation as to where he's been? There's been absolutely no official explanation at all, which is is very strange, and I think it, it's slightly worrying because it just underscores how little we really know about what is going on inside the Kremlin or what the motives for their rather weird movements are. Um, and, um, well, I just say as well, we, we, we've yet to see whether he will go down to, to Crimea. Um, Dan, you're there. Um, tomorrow's St. Patrick's Day in Ireland, um, so there'll be uh, the usual festivities here. So the next couple of days, what's in store? Um, is, it, is it like a, a national, national festival there now, national holiday kind of atmosphere? Yeah, I mean, it's been interesting. There are so many things changing all the time down here. The people are a little bit unclear even which days are uh, considered local holidays now. Um, today, they were talking about having a, a, a day off work. Some people weren't sure whether they should go into work or not. And then um, uh, on the 18th, when, when, when the documents were signed in the Kremlin to officially annex uh, um, Crimea and take it into the Russian Federation, that's also, a, a, well, some people think it's a holiday and some people don't. So everything's kind of in flux here. Um, but out on the streets, there are things going on all the time. There are people wandering around with flags. There are parades taking place. And, um, yeah, all eyes will be on, on whether Putin or, or other top officials do make an appearance later in the week. Certainly, it's the expectation of a lot of people down here. And as Isabel was saying there, this, this whole uh, reclaiming of, uh, of Crimea by Russia is so much associated with Putin now, and and in that uh, documentary over the weekend, he kind of made it clear that this was his work, this was his initiative, and he he oversaw the whole um, the whole operation. So great hopes that he'll show up here this week, and um, we'll see, we'll see. Um, with, you know, the, the Putin's movements are, 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 are even more unclear than, than than usual at the moment. So um, it remains to be seen whether he shows up or not. Okay. Well, uh, Daniel Midlockton in Crimea and Isabel Gorston Moscow. Thank you both for that analysis. And now to Syria, where the devastating war that began with an eternal uprising against the regime of Bashar al-Assad four years ago this month shows no sign of abating. Indeed, it seems further than ever from a possible resolution. I'm joined by our correspondent, Michael Jansen, who has spent the past week in Damascus. 
Michael, can I ask you first to give us some picture of what life is like for people in Damascus after four years of war? Well, uh, life is as normal as possible. People are going to work and uh, students are going to university and uh, children to school. Uh, the streets are filled with traffic and the pedestrian ways are packed with people walking uh, who are also trying to avoid traffic jams. And um, there is a certain amount of shelling going on, but it's much less than there was when last I was in Moscow in June. Uh, there were a couple of mortars which landed the morning I arrived there. But um, there hasn't been a great deal of uh, violence in the center of the city for some time. There have been a couple of sort of showers uh, or volleys of mortars and rockets from the suburbs um, off and on, but they are not uh, a steady uh, occurrence. And how are people surviving, Michael? I mean, what, what's the economy like there now? The, obviously, the, the tourism industry that... Damascus used to uh, rely upon is, has, I'm sure, has just disappeared. How are people surviving economically? People are surviving with difficulty. Um, inflation is said to be around 30%, and the currency has uh, depreciated uh, dramatically since the crisis began. Prices are soaring. Goods are available, but people cannot afford them, or many people cannot afford them. Um, electricity cuts take place uh, at, at different intervals. In central Damascus, they are few. Uh, on, in the suburbs, they are uh, more. And the further you get from the center of the city, the more the cuts. So that makes a problem sometimes for factories and so on, which are on the outskirts. Um, as far as unemployment is concerned, the figure that I was given is about 60%. Now, that is because so many factories and so many businesses uh, have either been destroyed or closed down because of the war. Uh, there are a lot of beggars in the streets, a lot more than um, is normal in Damascus. Of course, there are no tourists. There are very few foreigners around. Uh, people actually come up to me and say, welcome to Syria, uh, because they can see that I'm a foreigner. But this used to be very common in the days before the war. And you, you report in the Irish Times today, Michael, on a conversation you had with a group of farmers living in and around the Islamic State-controlled city of Raqqa. What did they say life was like for them? Well, life for them is intolerable. There are no schools, no shops are working properly um, there are no uh, uh, restaurants or cafes there is uh, constant bullying by the fighters of the Islamic State who come from 87 countries and about half of these fighters are foreigners which means non-Arabs and more than half about 60 percent and about 40% are Arabs um, from across the Arab world, as well as Syrians. And they told me that the most brutal and unfriendly amongst these people were the Tunisians and the Saudis. And they also mentioned that the Saudis have a lot of money. 
Now, compared to the local people, I presume most of these fighters who are being paid uh, somewhere between three and six hundred dollars a month are considered to be rather wealthy. The fighters also take over houses of Raqqa people who leave, and also they take over their land. The farmers were able to harvest their crops, and um, they said that the crops this year were very good. They are also planting uh, fresh crops in wheat and maize and cotton, as well as vegetables. Uh, fuel is scarce and difficult to find in Raqqa, uh, particularly mazout, which is used to run diesel engines and things like this. And um, all the uh, commercial goods are, come from Turkey. And many of the items which are brought in from Turkey are of low quality, and the people are complaining about that. Okay. And, and Michael, to look at the, the larger picture, as it were, this war has exacted a ter- terrible toll on the Syrian people. And, and so far, it has defeated all international diplomatic efforts to bring it to an end. I think the last concerted talks or concerted effort was the, the Geneva II talks, which broke up just over a year ago. Is there any further diplomatic push on the horizon to give some hope to the Syrian people that there might be uh, an end to this nightmare? Well, the Syrians are hoping that uh, meetings which are now taking place uh, in Cairo, in Paris, uh, and eventually again in Moscow, there were meetings in Moscow uh, in January, uh, might come up with some kind of agreement between the different opposition groups, and then eventually the government. Uh, And the the aim of this is to create a kind of political solution, which might, in fact, be taken to Geneva for Geneva III, which would usher in a transitional arrangement where President Bashar al-Assad would eventually stand down, but not stand down before the transition begins. And this this particular point has been agreed by the opposition groups, but there are still some points which are outstanding, and they haven't agreed on this. The problem with the opposition groups is they are fighting with each other as, as well as fighting within the factions. And um, it's very difficult for them to come up with a firm policy. And that's true of the opposition groups which are inside Syria, and also for the Syrian National Coalition, which is based outside Syria in Turkey. And I suppose, Michael, another difficulty is the um, lack of coherence on, in term, on the side of the Western powers as to what to do about this. There was an interesting development at the weekend where um, John Kerry um, said an answer to a question that the US would eventually have to negotiate with Assad. And then this was followed by an almost immediate denial by the State Department, which said, well, he didn't really mean... Assad, you know, he meant maybe the Syrian government, but that Washington would never negotiate with, with Assad. What does this kind of tell us about uh, the, the confusion and the, the indecisiveness um, in terms of the Western powers as to what to do about Syria? Yes, well, the United States has been following a very contradictory policy. Um, it has been signaling that it would uh, agree that Assad should stay on since November when um, President Obama was asked, would he expect Assad to step down 
before the transition process begins, and he and Obama said no, uh, and that was his one-word answer to that question. The question, the problem is that the U.S. is also um, starting to train what they call moderate fighters and arm them so that they can enter Syria and fight against the Islamic State group. Uh, and ultimately, presumably, against Assad. And this doesn't create a lot of confidence in Damascus. Um, the other thing is that the Western powers themselves are divided. You have Britain and France, which are adopting a very hard line against Assad and his regime, and Italy, uh, Spain, and Greece, which are taking a softer line. And their line is more in tune with the internal opposition in in um, in Syria. And so, out of all of that, Michael, I mean, finally, what's your own your own view? Um, are there any grounds for optimism? It seems a very uh, complicated, fragmented picture, fragmented opposition, um, lack of lack of uh, unity in in terms of Western uh, powers and so on. Uh, so, is, is there any hope um, that we can we can latch onto out of all of that? Well, I, the people in Damascus are, at least the ones I spoke to, uh, who come from different uh, parts of the society, are optimistic because they see where they are and also along the coast in areas which, where the government is in control. They see improvements in their situation um, in terms of security and in terms of services. However, the economic situation has is deteriorating and could uh, really create a major problem for the government, which is uh, it cannot maintain the services and the uh, security and so on without external funding, uh, which is uh, rather tight at the moment because a lot of this has been coming from Russia and Iran, which both have other concerns besides Syria. Okay, Michael Johnson, well, thank you for that analysis. And you're, you're writing about, um, you're reporting from Damascus all this week in the Irish Times. Thank you. That's it from this week's edition of Worldview. From Sinead O'Shea, producer, Rob O'Sullivan, sound engineer, and me, Chris Dooley. Thanks for listening. Goodbye.